Snowman Podcast. Welcome back to the Snowman Podcast. I'm your host, as always, the Snowman. Well, folks, it's time to continue our journey through the Battle of Gettysburg. If you recall where we left off in Part 1, General Robert E. Lee had decided on a plan of attack against the Federals' defenses. The Federals were along the heights to the south of the town of Gettysburg in the shape of a fishhook, ranging from Culp's Hill to the two large hills on the southern end of their lines. The hills' names were Big Round Top and Little Round Top. General Yule would attack with his corps the northern flank and try to sweep over and around the Federal line while Longstreet would try a flanking maneuver to the south, leaving the center more or less alone for the time being. Longstreet was not happy about the plan, but could not argue the point further than he had already done so, so he decided to try and reason with Lee later on if he could. On the federal side, things were still in a bit of a mess. Winfield Scott Hancock was in charge of the Union Center with his original command of the 2nd Corps. To the south was General Dan Sickles with his 3rd Corps. Meade's old command of the 5th Corps was still coming up and would act more or less as a reserve for the battle while the 12th Corps held the defenses at Culp's Hill. The fighting that took place on July 2nd, 1863 was some of the fiercest and bloodiest fighting that had been seen thus far through the war. Men on both sides were beyond exhausted from forced marches and then going straight into combat. But when they did, the adrenaline kicked in and they fought like wildcats. At the conclusion of the day, the battle would still be undecided, thus prompting Lee to order the next day an incredible massive cannon barrage and one of, if not the most devastating charges in the Civil War, Pickett's Charge. Be forewarned, this episode will once again include graphic depictions of violence. This is a sad element of truth that comes with stories such as these, but they are important to learn about nonetheless. It will also include more clips and music from the movie as well as interview clips with the late great Shelby Foote. Folks, I do want to give you a heads up. This is more for parents if you are listening with young children. There are going to be some swear words throughout the course of the episode, mainly due to clips from the movies. I, again, did not edit them out because they add historical significance to the plot. So just a heads up, there is some language in it, but it is for historical purposes only. References used once again in this episode will include the GettysburgFoundation.org, www.mps.gov forward slash Gettysburg, DestinationGettysburg.com, Wikipedia.org forward slash Battle of Gettysburg, AbrahamLincolnOnline.org forward slash speeches forward slash Gettysburg, History.com forward slash Battle of Gettysburg, EncyclopediaVirginia.org forward slash entries forward slash Gettysburg campaign, ehistory.osu.edu forward slash articles forward slash myths dash Gettysburg, www.gdg.org forward slash Gettysburg measuring, Gettysburg National Battlefield's official YouTube page, I highly recommend you check out their channel as there are videos of park rangers who lead tours throughout the battlefield and can provide even more intricate details than what I can provide in this episode. Clips from the 1993 epic film Gettysburg. Music composed for the film by Randy Edelman. 
From Manassas to Appomattox, The Memoirs of James Longstreet, and The Stars in Their Courses by Shelby Foote, amongst many more. Key people you will hear about in this episode will include, on the Confederate side, James Longstreet, Robert E. Lee, George Pickett, Lowe Armistead, Richard Garnett, Johnston Pettigrew, John Bell Hood, and many more. On the federal side, you'll hear about Generals George Green, Winfield Scott Hancock, Dan Sickles, Colonel Van Horn Ellis, Joshua Chamberlain, and General Webb, amongst many others. At the end of this episode, I'll be doing a dramatic reading of the Gettysburg Address and discussing why it is so important to study up on, especially in today's world. So, we've got a lot to cover in this episode, so it's best you take a swig of water from your canteen, or whatever else you may be having it, and fall into line. The assembly's being called, and we're about to move out. Never thought it would last this long. You need a loaf. I thought the war would be over in a month. That's three years and how many more? Who could have dreamed it could go on for so long? We are drift here in a sea of blood and I want it to end. I want this to be the final battle. I've led a soldier life. I've never seen anything as brutally clear as this. Today will be the last day. Maybe today. Gentlemen, I think if we lose this fight, we lose the war. God will. That will be done. After a full day of fighting, 16,000 men were casualties, nearly 9,000 federal troops, and close to 7,000 Confederates. Union General John Reynolds was dead, and Confederate General James Archer was a prisoner. The morale of both armies was roughly the same. The Federals maintained control of the heights, while the Rebs maintained control of the town. The atmosphere was tense as soldiers in both armies prepared for the upcoming battle of the day. They knew that if they were hit, their time in the war was as good as over. All dreaded the idea of being shot. Many preferred to be killed outright as opposed to being taken into the hospital where the chances of a doctor sawing off their mangled limbs was almost a guarantee. The horror was almost too much to contemplate. General Robert E. Lee stepped out of his headquarters and put on his gloves. His gray hair was already damp with sweat due to the extremely high humidity of July. Putting on his hat, he placed his hand on his sword and walked from the porch. Saluting his aide, Major Taylor, and the rest of his staff, he approached the table under the tent that contained the map of the terrain and where he would finalize the battle plans of the day. With the exception of only a couple of divisions, including pickets, Longstreet's corps was close at hand and would be ready for action before the end of the day. Lee decided for the following to happen. Ewell's attack on the northern end of the field, on Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill, would not commence until he heard the guns of Longstreet's Corps open up to the south. This, he hoped, would cause enough confusion to the Federal's defenses that it would reign supreme and make them retreat. However, Lee knew that in war, nothing was a guarantee, least of all victory. But he had seen the Yankees run time and time again, 
and thought this battle would be no different. At one point during the war conference, General John Bell Hood rode up and conferred with his superiors. He was a major general in command of one of Longstreet's divisions, and as he observed the Federal's positions, Lee explained what he had told Longstreet the day before. The enemy is here, and if we do not whip him, he will whip us. Hood presumed that that meant Lee would take the offensive as quickly as possible. Longstreet, however, still frustrated by Lee refusing to even discuss his plan of redeployment, spoke privately with Hood after Lee had gone to find General Yule. He looked around to make sure no one else was within earshot, then said quietly to Sam, Hood's nickname was Sam, General Lee is a little nervous this morning. He wishes me to attack, but I do not wish to do so without picket. I never like going into battle with one boot off. Lee decided to confer with Yule directly and rode off to his headquarters on his horse traveler a little after 9 o'clock in the morning. Longstreet would wait at his headquarters on Seminary Ridge till his return. When Lee arrived at Yule's headquarters, Yule was off on an inspection and did not return for a good bit of time. Uh, that wasn't good. Especially for Lee, who was trying to coordinate the plan of attack. Lee noted to General Tremble the difficulty of the northern end of the field. The Federals had reinforced the two hills during the night and early morning, which would make taking them that much harder. Lee lamented the following. The enemy have the advantage of us in a shot and inside the line, and we are too much extended. This was the biggest issue for the Army of Northern Virginia during the length of the battle. The Federals keeping the high ground proved to be more vital than they could have ever imagined them to be. Their defenses were close together, and when an area needed reserves, they could be filled very quickly. Meanwhile, the Confederates would have to pull men from miles away to fill their reserves. After conferring and explaining his plans to General Yule, Lee returned to his headquarters on Seminary Ridge just after 11 a.m. No fighting had yet commenced that day. Lee then ordered Longstreet to move south and commence his attack with his divisions of Hood and McClaws. Longstreet saluted and nodded, but asked for a short delay of a half hour for the arrival of General Evander Law's brigade, who would be up presently. They had marched 24 miles in just under 9 hours. Those men had to have been exhausted. I want to take a quick pause here to discuss what the Federal's defenses look like. I mentioned it, albeit briefly, a few moments ago, but I wanted to take an extra minute to share a little more detail with you now. They were positioned along the heights ranging from Culp's Hill down the line to Cemetery Ridge and then all the way down to where the two large hills sat practically empty. If you look at it on a map or a satellite style image, it would appear to be in the shape of an old-fashioned fishhook. Listen to how Shelby Foote described their position. Very few could rival his expertise on the Civil War. Uh, Meade had a position at Gettysburg that was the closest thing to a molded castle out of the Middle Ages the world ever saw. It was a marvelous defensive position. It was close to noon by the time Longstreet moved his corps to the south as ordered, but it took longer than expected to get his men into position. Add to that, General Sickles decided to move his corps forward from their positions along the Federal left into the Peach Orchard and Wheatfield, thinking it provide better cover instead. We'll discuss Dan Sickles more in a few minutes. Major General Lafayette McClaws was ordered to take those positions as they had been told there wasn't any Federals there. But like I said, 
no one had anticipated Sickles moving up like he had. So, as McClaws looked for himself, he saw the blue uniforms of the Federals all too clearly. And he didn't like it. He tried to argue with Longstreet, but Longstreet was unable to change course as he was also under orders that he could not argue further. Longstreet's other divisional commander, John Bell Hood, also protested the idea of a direct attack. He sent scouts to observe and saw that the two hills were unoccupied and asked if he could change course and attack there. Longstreet was determined now to carry out Lee's orders right or wrong. He sent word to Sam, quote, General Lee's orders are to attack up the Emmitsburg Road, end quote. It pained Longstreet to do this, but he was caught between a rock and a hard place. He was able to meet up with Sam directly and tell him what was going on, as opposed to sending a messenger, which he had done previously. Here's a clip from the movie as to how that conversation may have gone. Yeah. Look at here. The ground is strewn with boulders. The soldiers up there are entrenched all over the ground, and their guns and the rocks. Every move I make is observed. I attack as ordered, I'll lose half my division, and they'll still be looking down the throats at us from that rocky hill right there. We must move around to the right, sir, and take them from the rear. Sam, the commanding general will not allow a flanking movement around those hills. I argued it yesterday, I argued it all morning. Hell, I've been arguing against any attack at all. I can't call this one off, you know it. Let me move up the big round hill to the south. There's nobody on that. Now, if I could get a battery up there, what? There ain't enough time. You'd have to cut down trees to place your artillery. It'd be dark before you were in action. On the other hand, if they get batteries up there, well, we're gonna need buckets to catch lead. You gotta take that hill. They don't even need guns to defend that. All they need to do is roll rocks down on you. Just take it. General. I do this under protest. Sam, you are the best I got. Now, sir, if you are ready, why don't you take that hill? By the time the fighting truly began, it was after 4 o'clock in the afternoon. There are so many instances of what took place on the second day, it is not possible to recount them all in this podcast. I'll share several key moments, but then I'm going to move on to the final assault on July 3rd. Longstreet's flank, the extreme right of the Confederate line, was under the command of General Evander Law, whose troops had just put in a forced march, and when he heard of where the attack was to take place, he flat out disobeyed them so as not to obliterate his command as soon as they got into action. So despite Longstreet's protest to General Lee, and then Hood's protest to General Longstreet to change course, it was General Law who changed the method of attack without asking permission, and the battle in and around Devil's Den commenced. Now, the cluster of boulders that became known as Devil's Den was named that prior to the battle, but during the fighting, it seemed more appropriate than ever before realized. Now, before we get into some of the nitty-gritty content of the battle, we must return to General Dan Sickles. I have little to no respect for Sickles because it seemed like he was out glory hunting. And when officers back in that time went glory hunting, it usually meant the unnecessary deaths of most, if not all, of their men. 
One of the most well-known occurrences of this is of Lieutenant Colonel Custer at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. That may or may not become a topic in the future on the Snowman Podcast, but right now I'm just using it as an example. Now, with Sickles, he was not in command of just a detachment. He was in charge of an entire corps, some 10,000 men. And he moved his entire corps forward so his right flank was no longer connected with Hancock's second corps and his left flank was left hanging in the air. The man was a buffoon. And when General Meade saw what he had done, he lost it. He galloped for Sickles' position and demanded an answer. Sickles replied he thought he would have a greater advantage moving forward to the heights as opposed to staying in his original spot, which was more or less in a valley. Meade was furious. Sickles offered to move back, but by then it was too late. Meade told him to stay put and he would send reinforcements as soon as he could. But before he could really tell Sickles what he thought of his actions, Meade's horse was spooked by cannon fire and the Rebs launched their attack. Sickles would feel the consequences of his actions all too well before the end of the day. Fierce fighting commenced amongst the rocks and boulders, and after the battle, it was considered amongst the bloodiest of all the fighting of the day. Awaiting the Rebs in the rocks was the 124th New York Regiment under the command of Augustus Van Horn Ellis. He was a stoic man, and during the battle is said to have exuded confidence in his men by standing behind them with his arms crossed over his chest. Despite the intense fighting, he stood there and encouraged his men as they fought. There were only around 230 men in the 124th, but they fought hard and valiantly. Ellis's second-in-command, Major Cromwell, was mounted on his horse despite the pleas of his men to get down and find cover with them. He simply replied, The men must see us today. That's bravery. Let's journey back and join these New Yorkers as they battle against the men of the 1st Texas. The battle raged on. Cromwell rode back to Ellis as he had done multiple times already, stating, Colonel, we must charge and throw these Rebs into confusion. I know we can take the field if we do so. If we stay here, we're bound for ruin. Ellis, who had shaken his head no every other time, finally nodded his approval. He knew their situation was getting worse by the second. Ammunition was getting low and the flanks were starting to give way. But he also knew he was as good as dead if he climbed into that saddle. His own life was of little consequence to him. He had to keep as many of his men alive as possible. Climbing into the saddle, he drew his saber and tells his bugler to sound the charge. Spurring his horse forward, he gallops over the stone wall. Stopping, he then waved his sword over his head and ordered his men to attack. The colors move forward and the regiment follows suit. They do indeed throw the 1st Texas into confusion, but the men from the south rebound quickly and let loose a volley that tore into the ranks of the charging New Yorkers. One estimated they lost a quarter of their strength when the Texans fired. Major Cromwell had galloped past Ellis with the lead advance. Ellis saw now that the entire regiment was now past him, and he turned to give them orders and encouragement. He looked at Cromwell, hoping to make eye contact with him and pass an idea he had, but as he did so, 
Cromwell was shot through the abdomen and reeled in the saddle before falling backwards off of his horse. Ellis yelled to his men, My God, man, your major is hit! Save him! Save him! The men who by this time had started to retreat back to cover reversed course and charged forward to retrieve their major's body. The Texans may or may not have held their fire to sporadic shots as they did so as a sign of respect. Ellis led the way. A few moments later, they retrieved Cromwell's body and began to fall back again. Ellis turned, about to give an order to his aide, but as he did so, he is shot in the head. And as his horse reels from the sudden lack of control, Ellis falls off lifeless amongst the boulders at Devil's Den. His men, although disheartened at the loss of their commanders, are able to retrieve his body also and then return to their old position which they hold with the aid of reinforcements for the remainder of the day's fighting. Now another story involving the 1st Texas and the 124th New York is a tale of one William J. Barbie, a rebel scout for General Hood. Now this story is just too mind-boggling to not be true, but it's almost too comical to be true. And I really wanted to share it with you. So William J. Barbie, a rebel scout for General Hood, had ridden forward to the front, but as he did so, his horse was shot out from under him. Without skipping a beat, he ran the rest of the way to the front and jumped on top of a boulder and began cursing out the Federal troops. Wounded Confederates then tossed their rifles up to him, and he began firing at the Federals, shooting around 20 to 25 times before he himself was finally shot off the rock. But within moments, he was back up on it, having only been wounded in the leg, you see. He was hit again in the leg, we don't know if it was the same one or not, and fell off. And again... He pulled himself back on top of the boulder. Finally, he was hit in the chest and fell off the rock and did not rise again. However, he still made his presence known, uh, more so to his own men, as he began cussing them out for not putting him back on the rock to shoot at the Federals. Either that dude had so much bravado it was coming out his ears, or he wasn't exactly all there in the head. And would you believe it? That Johnny Reb survived till the following January, where he was killed in action near Dandridge, Tennessee. <laughs> Boy, some guys have a type of bravado no one knows how to deal with. As Hood saw his men moving the Federals back, he rode forward cheering them on. But as he did so, a shell exploded over his head, sending shrapnel raining down on him. Several chunks of glowing red metal hit Hood in the left arm just below his elbow. The searing pain threw Hood from his horse and he was quickly removed from the field and was out of commission for the rest of the battle. In fact, he was removed to Virginia the following day. For the past 150 plus years, Historians and scholars alike thought Hood's arm hung at his side uselessly for the rest of his life. But in 2017, Hood's descendants provided detailed reports from Hood's doctor, which had not been previously released, which stated that while he never regained full function of his arm, he did regain most of it. This information was sourced from www.historynet.com forward slash a shot in the arm. 
Now, in the Peach Orchard, General Barksdale's brigade of Mississippians broke the Federal lines and scattered them everywhere. One Federal colonel is reported having said, it was the grandest charge that has ever been made by mortal man, end quote. He had yet to see what would happen the next day. The Rebs continued to advance, but during the fighting, General Barksdale was wounded multiple times. His left knee was shot, and a cannonball wounded him in the foot without injuring his horse. Till at last, he was mortally wounded after being shot through the chest, propelling him off his mount and falling just past the orchard. His men, who had been counterattacked by this time, were forced to leave General Barksdale behind at his own insistence. He succumbed to his wounds the following day in a federal field hospital. As for old General Dan Sickles, who now had to deal with his blunder and try to survive the fighting, did not escape being wounded. Sometime during the battle, a solid cannonball flew past him as he sat on his horse. It shattered his lower leg, yet did not spook his horse according to the history books. Those are two lucky horses right there in those stories. An incredible amount of other horses weren't so fortunate. Sickles was taken to the rear, coolly puffing on a cigar. How? I have no idea, so don't even ask me. His leg was amputated, and being the stuck-up you-know-what that he was, he donated his leg to the Army Medical Museum, which has now become the National Museum of Health and Medicine, where he visited it on display for the next 50 years. <laughs> Man, that guy was... He was something. <laughs> That's all I'll say about old General Dan Sickles. <laughs> he was something. His corps was practically destroyed that day, and after the battle, the Third Corps was dissolved and the men transferred to other divisions. Another story of incredible bravery that took place on the second day is that of the First Minnesota. The Rebs had broken through the Third Corps' defenses and were making their way towards Cemetery Hill. Approaching a line of batteries, artillery pieces, General Hancock saw two brigades closing in on their positions quickly. He had to stall them with all possible speed. Seeing a reserve regiment close by, he rode over and asked, What unit is this? The first commanding officer, Colonel Colville, replied, The first Minnesota, General. Without skipping a beat due to lack of time, Hancock looked Colville square in the eye. Attack that line, Colonel. It was practically a death sentence. But Colville saluted, and the 262 men from the land of 10,000 lakes fixed bayonets and charged towards the line of gray troops over a thousand strong. The charge, first a walk and then a run. The startled Confederates hesitated in the face of Colville's onrushing soldiers, and then fell back behind their own second line. Their advance stopped as the two forces converged in a chaotic melee of close-in gunfire around the low banks of a dry brook, Plum Run, at the foot of a slope. The episode lasted less than 15 minutes, but it was enough time for reinforcements to arrive. The Confederates retreated, and the first Minnesota achieved lasting fame by throwing back a crucial attack that came dangerously close to a breakthrough. But the price was high. Of the 262 men who made the charge, 215 were casualties. 
The casualties included Colonel Colville and five flag bearers, each having dropped their rifle to pick up the flag and carry it further. Again, I point you to the Flag Day episode where I emphasize the importance of the regimental colors and the country's colors. That was how people in the rear could see where their men were, see how far they had advanced. The remaining 47 soldiers made their way back to General Hancock after additional reinforcements arrived and aided in the attack. The 1st Minnesota had a casualty report of 82%, the highest out of any regiment in the history of the U.S. military in a single day of fighting. At Gettysburg, there are two monuments to the 1st Minnesota, one of which is one of my all-time favorites. It's that of a soldier running with his rifle and bayonet extended in front of him. I've gotten some great pictures of that memorial, and I intend to get more. The other is an obelisk detailing their further actions on the 3rd. Now, you can still see the regimental colors today. If you ever visit the Capitol Rotunda in St. Paul, Minnesota, you can look upon the flag that was held aloft during a desperate attempt to slow the Confederate onslaught on July 2nd. On the northern side of the field, Ewell's Corps launched their massive assault on Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill. The Federals had fortified those hills, but the troops placed there were stretched so thin due to men being called to the south that at some points they were in a single line across with no reserves. It is very possible that the Federals could have easily been pushed back by the ferocious attacks of the Confederates had it not been for one man, Brigadier General George Green. An engineer before the war, he was also one of the oldest generals on the field at the time. It was under his guidance that his men built impressive breastworks that undoubtedly saved many of their lives. The Confederates charged time and again, but barely made any progress in pushing the Federals back. When reserve troops came in to support exhausted defenders, they succeeded in pushing them back and holding Culp's Hill for the Union. The fighting would last well into the night, not fully concluding till after 10 p.m. The only way the troops could keep fighting was by seeing the flashes from the enemy rifles. It is one of few times during the Civil War that fighting continued after dark. Back on the southern end of the field, after the fighting had commenced, an officer who commanded no troops, save those on his own staff, cantered to the top of the smaller of the two large hills and was astonished to find that no troops were placed on them, despite them being very good defensive positions. The officer's name was Governor K. Warren. Sensing the urgency of the battle and the disastrous scene of the Third Corps' blunder, Warren sent a courier to Major General Sykes, commander of the Fifth Corps, and told him of the situation. Sykes agreed and ordered his 1st Division to get there with all possible speed. But as the courier was on his way, he ran into Colonel Strong Vincent, who was in command of the 3rd Brigade. Vincent knew the danger was imminent, so he took it upon himself to move his brigade to the smaller hill and defend it at all costs. Within his brigade was the 16th Michigan, the 44th New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and the 20th Maine. The 20th Maine was commanded by the now infamous Colonel Joshua Chamberlain. Vincent placed him on the flank. The whole damn Reb Army is down there and coming up around our flanks. Be here any minute. We've got to hold this place. We've got to hold it. 
Well, all right. I place you here. Put your colors here and set your regiment to the left of this line. The rest of the brigade will form on your right. Understood? Yes, Ellis, this is the point. Yes, sir. Now your regiment is to the left at this point. Colonel, sir, you're the end of the line. Yes. You are the extreme left of the Union Army. Understood? The line runs all the way from here back to Cemetery Hill. But it ends here. Understood. You cannot withdraw under any condition. If you go, this line will be flanked. If you go, the enemy will sweep up over the hillside and take this entire army from the rear. You must defend this place to the last. Yes, sir. Chamberlain knew the severity of his post. If he caved, the entire army would be taken from the rear. He had faced combat before, but never anything like this. Could his boys withstand the Rebs' assault? He had barely any time to find out. For a mere 15 minutes after his regiment and the others were placed, the Rebs appeared at the bottom of the hill. The Confederate regiments were that of the 4th, 15th, and 47th Alabama and the 4th and 5th Texas. These men, who were preparing to charge up the sloping hill, were beyond exhausted, as they had marched more than 20 miles that day in the grueling heat and they had drunk their canteens dry. In fact, just prior to them being ordered to attack the Federal lines, they had sent some of their men with all their canteens to fill them up and bring them back to them. But before they could refresh themselves, they were ordered into the fight. For the next hour and a half, the two sides exchanged fire. Men cried out in pain as bullets hit them in various parts of their bodies, yet both sides fought on. For every inch of ground gained, they hoped proved a closer end to the war itself. The smoke of the battle hung low and heavy on the mountain, and it became extremely difficult to see much of anything. During a brief lull in the fighting, Chamberlain refused his line of defense. We're about to be flanked. Now here's what we're going to do. I want you to keep up a good hot masking fire and keep a tight hold on the 83rd, on old Pennsylvania over there. I want no break in the line. Captain Clark, that's you, you understand? No breaks. All right, the right wing is going to sidestep to the left, thinning out to twice the present distance. Now you see the colors, the colors are going to end up down to the extreme left. When you reach that point, we're going to refuse the line. Understand? We'll form new line at right angles. We'll pull up as much of a reserve as possible. We've got to be able to counterattack whenever there's a hole. Is that clear? Any questions? No, sir. Fine. Move. This move to refuse the line was a brilliant form of strategy. It's even more impressive because unlike most of the leading officers in the army, Chamberlain was not a career soldier, nor had he ever been to West Point. Yeah, yeah, I know some of you are going to say, well, neither was Dan Sickles. Well, there's a big, big difference. Sickles was an egomaniac. Chamberlain was just doing his duty. So don't even try to defend Sickles against Chamberlain. <laughs> what 
poppycock. Chamberlain had been a professor of rhetoric at Bowdoin College before the war. He was a very devout man, and I am of the firm belief that his decision to refuse the line was divinely inspired. The Andrew who you just heard him address was the color barrier Sergeant Andrew Tozier. This next bit of info is from wikipedia.org forward slash Andrew J. Tozier. Quote, during the battle on Little Round Top, Tozier stood at the center of the regiment with a regimental flag tucked in his right elbow while he used the rifle of a wounded member of the color guard to return fire on the attacking Confederates, end quote. The courage of some is enough to inspire any around them. The greatest example of these on Little Round Top was Sergeant Tozier and his commanding officer, Colonel Chamberlain. With the refusing of the line complete, Chamberlain kept the musket fire good and hot for a while longer, but the Rebs were tough, mighty tough and they got so close they pushed the blue troops back from their original positions. But the boys from Maine fought tooth and nail and reclaimed their spot. But in the process one of their companies was cut off. The rest of the regiment presumed they were lost and kept fighting without them. During another brief lull, Chamberlain took quick assessment of his men. Hey keep coming! How long are they gonna keep coming? I don't have much left. I got two shots. That's what I got. I got two. They keep coming on the flanks. They keep moving to the left more. Boss, they can't send no help from there. So the Pennsylvania boys said they got trouble to their own. Well, sir, we'd like to report. What? 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 Colonel Vincent is badly wounded. Got hit a few minutes after the fight started. Is there any way you can get ammunition from up there? I don't know, sir. Everything's a mess. But they're holding good. The Rebs are having a hard time coming up that hill. It's a steep hill. So now we're going to need the ammunition. Colonel, sir, none of my men are wounded. If the Rebs come up that hill any stronger, sir, I don't think we can stop them. Sir, we're running out. We don't have much left to shoot with. Some of the boys got nothing at all. Sir, sir, what do we do for ammunition? My boys have red muskets and they're firing back with them. Sir, we ought to pull out. No, we can't do that. We can't hold them again, sir. You know that. Well, if we don't, they go on by and over the hill and the whole flank caves in. Well, we can't run away. If we stay here, we can't shoot. So let's fix bayonets. They gotta be tired, the Rebs. They gotta be close to the end if we are. So fix bayonets. Ellis, wait, Ellis, you take the left wing, I'll take the right. I want a right wheel forward of the whole regiment. What, you mean charge? Yes, but here's what we do. We're going to charge swinging down the hill. Just like we pulled back to this left side of the regiment, now we're going to swing it down. We swing like a door. We're gonna sweep them down the hill just as they come up. Understand? Does everybody understand? Yes, yes sir. sir. Okay, Ellis, you take the left wing, and when I give the command, I want the whole regiment to go forward swinging down to the right. All right, sir. Fine. Move. With two-thirds of his regiment dead or wounded, this was a last-ditch effort for Chamberlain to save the flank. The men fixed their bayonets and prepared for the charge. Down the hill, the Rebs were nearing their breaking point. Many had collapsed from lack of water and the extreme heat, but those that could reloaded their rifles and prepared to go up the hill yet again. When out of nowhere, they heard a bugle sound the charge from the top of the hill. Charge. 
And then to their horror, they saw blue forms running down the hill directly at them with bayonets gleaming in the evening light. What courage they had left evaporated instantly and they turned and retreated as fast as they could. One line of Confederates did try to fight back, but Company B, the company that had been cut off from the rest of the regiment, raised up and fired into the rear of their line, having bivouacked themselves behind a stone wall. And they sent those last few remaining Confederates running into confusion. Within a few minutes, the 20th Maine had not only routed the Rebs, but had taken a large quantity of prisoners, over 400 to be precise. Listen now to how Shelby Foote described Chamberlain's charge and the effects it had on the outcome of the battle. Well, he managed to stop the Alabamians who were going to take Little Round Top. That's what he did. And uh, it was a terrific uh, touch-and-go thing. And if it had been anybody less resolute than Chamberlain, they would have lost Little Round Top because there was no shortcoming of resolution on the other side. Those Alabamians and Texans were coming. As for Colonel Vincent, whose gallant efforts almost undoubtedly saved the Federal Army from being flanked, fell mortally wounded a few minutes after the fighting had started. You heard that in the movie clip. He was promoted to Brigadier General on his deathbed, where he succumbed to his wounds on July 7th. The fighting on July 2nd started off slow and extremely late in the day, but once it started, all hell seemed to break loose. Nearly 20,000 men became casualties as a result of the fighting on July 2nd. The Federals once again suffered a higher number of casualties. Without a doubt, this was due to the terrible blunder of General Sickles. If it had not been for the quick, decisive thinking of General Warren and Colonel Vincent and the defense preparations by General Green on Culp's Hill, the Federal Army would have been beaten back off the high ground and the Confederates would have taken the field and likely won the battle. But thank God that was not the case. July 3rd would decide the final outcome of the battle. And if General Lee was right, the war. Late in the evening of July 2nd, a worn and tired Jeb Stuart rode into the Confederate encampment. It had been several days since he had last reported, as everyone already knew, and he wasn't greeted with smiles and cheers, more so with somber and unimpressed looks. As the night went on, he was ordered to report to General Lee. No one knows what was said in their discussion, but Majors Taylor and Marshall could tell Lee was extremely agitated. It is widely assumed that Lee berated Stuart for leaving the army blind and deaf as they marched into enemy territory, and told him that it must never, ever happen again. The movie does an excellent job of demonstrating this, though it does take liberties due to us not knowing what was said. Stuart was dejected after realizing he had failed so miserably. Lee put his weathered hand on the young general's shoulder, reassuring him that he still trusted him and his abilities emphatically and that the mistake was addressed and the books closed on it. The next day, his cavalry would be needed for the final assault. Lee dismissed Stuart and then retired for the night. On the morning of the third day, Lee was more determined than ever to take the field. Taking the field on the first day had given him hope for a speedy end to the war. 
The discombobulated attacks on the second day, although they proved practically a failure, had given him even more confidence that he would achieve complete victory on the third day. He met with General Longstreet on the morning of July 3rd and explained to him his plan of attack. Longstreet would attack the center of the Federal lines and break them in the middle. They had nearly flanked the Federals to the south and had attacked them heavily to the north. Lee believed this would make Meade bolster his flanks more and leave the middle weak. Longstreet took a look at the terrain with his binoculars and puffed uneasily on his cigar. The field between their lines and the Federals was wide, close to if not more than a mile. He also noticed that about two-thirds of the way through the field, he saw a fence that ran the length of the Emmitsburg Road. Even if his men could make it that far, they would be slowed mightily by that fence, and they would be severely displaced as they tried to regroup and reform the attack right in front of the enemy lines. Before he even stopped looking through his binoculars, he knew it was a bad attack and would undoubtedly fail. Shifting in the saddle, he cleared his throat. He knew what he was about to say would probably fall on deaf ears, but he had to say it anyway. Sir, uh, <clears throat> my two divisions, of Hoods and McClaws, well, sir, they executed a force march yesterday and went straight into the fight. Sustained 50% casualties, sir. They are tired and need a rest. There are, uh, now three federal corps in those two rocky hills on our right flank. If I move all my people forward, well, we won't have a flank at all. They are well entrenched up there. They aim to fight. They got good artillery and plenty of it. Sir, any attack we make will be uphill over open ground. How do we communicate? How do we coordinate attack? They're all massed together, damn near in a circle. Good interior lines. Anywhere we hit them, they'll bring up reinforcements in a matter of minutes. But we try to bring up support. They have to come from miles away, and their cannon will see every move. In the center, they will break. Sir? They will break in the center. Those people will be gaining men from all directions, guns by the thousands, and Richmond has nothing left to send us. So if we stay, we fight. If we retreat now, we will have fought here for two days and will leave knowing we could not drive him off. And I have never yet left the enemy in command of the field. No, sir. Retreat is no longer an option. Lee saw it otherwise. He thought they were now invincible and that nothing could stop them from taking the field that day. And he was determined now more than ever to do so. He had a division that was fresh in General Pickett. And now that Stuart had at long last returned, he had his cavalry as a diversionary attack. He had faced the Federals time and again in Virginia and nearly every time had driven them from the field in mass confusion. Today, July 3, 1863, would be no different. Lee did take one thing that Longstreet said into consideration. The divisions of Hood and McClaws were severely weakened by the fighting on the second day and were not capable of mounting another attack on the third. Lee decided to give Longstreet two of A.P. Hill's divisions that of Johnston Pettigrew and Isaac Trimble, who had taken the command of the mortally wounded Dorsey Pender. In all, it would be an assault of more than 12,000-plus men. The sheer sight of them marching across the field, chanting their rebel yell and their battle flags flapping in the breeze, it would no doubt terrorize 
the federal troops, and they would run. However, Longstreet once again pleaded his case. You planned it well, I pray you, sir. We stake everything on this. Sir, with your permission. Sir, I've been a soldier all my life. I have served from the ranks on up. You know my service. But, sir, I must tell you now, I believe this attack will fail. No 15,000 men ever made can take that ridge. It's a distance of more than a mile over open ground. When the men come out of the trees, they will be under fire of Yankee artillery from all over the field. And those are Hancock's boys. And now they have the stone wall like we did at Fredericksburg. Lee was not persuaded. The attack would take place after a massive artillery barrage that would break up the Federals' defenses even more. Lee had full confidence that Longstreet, his old warhorse, would achieve victory. Longstreet gave in. There was nothing more he could say. He saluted General Lee, and as the confident Southern commander and his staff rode away, General Pickett cantered up. George, George, you are leading the attack. Now get ready, George. Form up your men behind the line of trees. I'll give you the details later. Now move, George. On the federal lines, General Hancock removed his hat and wiped the sweat from his brow. It was too hot today for a battle. The rebels could not possibly plan an attack today. No, he, he was sure of it. He had around 6,000 men with him at the center and a long, fat stone wall between them and the Confederate lines. He took a seat and lit his cigar. General Alexander Webb approached him and saluted. What do you think will happen today, sir? Nothing. I believe it's too hot and everyone is too exhausted. Tell your men to be at ease, but ever alert just in case they do try something. Who knows? Maybe by tomorrow they'll be gone and this war will continue for an eternity. God, I pray that doesn't happen. Indeed, sir. Webb paused, then spoke again. Sir, have you heard anything of your friend Louis Armistead? Oh, Lo? <laughs> yes. He's actually over there somewhere commanding one of George Pickett's brigades. I hope to see him before too long. Buy him a new hat. <laughs> that frumpled hat he's always had. It was falling apart while we were in California. It must be practically disintegrated by now. Webb chuckled along with the general. Very good, sir. I intend to walk amongst my men in a little while, as most still don't know who I am, what with the change of command constantly changing these days. <laughs> would you care to come along? It would lift the spirits of the boys if they saw you, sir. Yes, I'll join you. I have some other matters to attend to first. Perhaps after midday would work? Very good, sir. I shall await your arrival to begin my walkthrough. Webb saluted, then departed. Hancock looked over his maps as Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery walked up. Ah, oh, Colonel, thank you for coming. How are your batteries? They're fine, sir. Had a rough go of it yesterday, but we held out. We are preparing for whatever may come our way today. Very good. Though I doubt anything will happen today. Everyone's too tired, too worn out. Good work yesterday, though. I'll make sure to put it in my reports. Even though you aren't directly in my command... 
But I doubt Sickles is in much shape right now to write a good report. That bloody damned maniac. <sighs> anyway, return to your batteries and get some rest. Thank you, sir. That'll be all. I'll be in communication with you should anything arise. Colonel McGilvery then saluted and returned to his batteries. Back on the southern lines, General Longstreet showed the plan of attack to Pickett and the others. Quick note, the scene says that there were nearly 15,000 men who made the charge. This was the common belief at the time the movie was made. It has now been determined to be around 12,500 roughly. Gentlemen, I want you to look at that clump of trees on that ridge. That is where all the units will converge. You will be spread out in a long line, perhaps a mile, about 15,000 men. All units converging on that point on the crest of that ridge. Now, look here. The Yankee Center, stone wall, small grove of trees. General Tremble, commanding Pender's division, will be on the left. Pettigrew's brigade's in support. General Pickett's division will be on the right side of the attack. And uh, George, I want you to put two brigades in front and one in back, like so. Yes, sir. Garnet's brigade, that's Jimmy Kemper. Armistead's in support. Good, all right then. Garnet will dress off a of Trimble's flank. He will be the hinge, so to speak, in a series of left obliques. Somewhere about the Emmitsburg Road, you will execute your first left oblique, then direct, then left again, and so on at your own discretion, in order to deceive the Yankees and spread them out in a long line. Here. Any questions? All right, gentlemen. As the Virginians began to move into position behind the trees, Longstreet's inner turmoil was boiling. There isn't a way to know if this actually happened or not, but Harrison, Longstreet's scout, came up and asked to take part in the charge. He wanted to be part of at least one engagement because, like so many others, Harrison thought that the war could be over after the day's fighting. Longstreet took this opportunity to explain exactly what would happen during the charge. The emotion you hear in Longstreet's voice is so heartbreaking. I cannot even imagine what the real man was going through. Sir, would you mind giving someone an order to give me a musket? I think today I'd like to join the attack. I could even borrow a hat, sir, from some soldier, or just a jacket with some stripes on it. Sir, just once. Because I think, sir, today might be the last day. Haven't I earned it, sir? You know what's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Troops are now forming behind the line of trees. When they come out, They'll be under enemy long-range artillery fire. Solid shot, percussion, every gun they have. The troops will come out under fire with more than a mile to walk. And still, within the open field. 
They'll be slowed by that fence out there. And the formation, what's left of it, will begin to come apart. When they cross that road, they'll be under short-range artillery, canister fire, thousands of little bits of shrapnel wiping holes in the lines. If they get to that wall without breaking up, there won't be many left. mathematical equation. But maybe, just maybe, our own artillery will break up their defenses. There's always that hope. That's Hancock out there, and he ain't gonna run. So it's mathematical after all. They get to that road or beyond it and suffer over 50% casualties. But Harrison, I don't believe my boys will reach that wall. At 1 p.m., the Confederate artillery under the command of Colonel Porter Alexander opened up. 150 cannons began to fire upon the center of the Union lines. The roar was deafening. Most cannon reenactors fire one-pounder rounds for audiences today. The poundage comes as a result of how much powder each shot had. Most of the cannons that opened up on July 3rd had roughly 6 to 12 pounds of black powder inside them. The screams of the shells were terrifying, and the Union troops in the center hunkered down to find whatever shelter they could. One report of just how far away you could hear the barrage was in Pittsburgh. Although it was distant, they say you could hear the rumble of the guns as if they were distant thunder. 150 miles! Now, back then you have to remember, there weren't any major highways, or cars, or trucks of any kind. There were factories, but the streets were relatively quiet compared to today. So, for my listeners on the eastern shore, I looked up how far away that would look to us. If you were to go and stand in the parking lot of Crown Sports Center and look north and plan a trip to Philadelphia, that's 143 miles away. People could hear the cannonade from further away than a trip from Crown Sports Center to Philly. That statistic is so incredibly insane, I don't have another way of putting it. The cannonade was massive, yet despite how incredible it sounded, the Federals were able to fire back. Some of you may be thinking, well, didn't Lee's plan work? If the massive artillery barrage was accurate, wouldn't they knock the Federals off the heights in the center and thus make the area empty? The answer is yes, it would have, but it didn't work out that way. 
You see, the weather was still very hot and humid, and when you mix smoke from cannons and humidity, it produces a heavy cloud at ground level, to where you can barely see much of anything. So for the spawners who elevated the cannons for firing long distance, the visual impairment would have increased 10 if not a hundredfold. Then with the response of the Federal guns, more problems arose. The Federals did have a slight advantage on the Rebs due to the higher vantage point, but not much. The biggest problem that arose from the return fire is that it pushed the caissons back further from the cannons thus making it harder and slower for them to reload. And they had to save enough ammunition to provide cover for the infantry support. We've been firing for a good while, sir. It's apparent neither the Federals nor we are going to gain a clear advantage in this business. We continue to expend our ammunition at this rate. We may endanger our ability to support the advance. Did you not have enough ordnance when this was begun? Federal fire compelled us to remove the artillery chain farther to the rear, sir. It's taking us longer to refill the case off. So we must slow down our fire now, or we will have to cut back on the guns sent in to support the infantry. See, I'm going to have to order General Pickett to halt his attack until these guns can be replaced. the trains have a little ammunition, it would take an hour to redistribute it. In the meanwhile, the enemy would improve the time. The longer we delay, the more time the Federals have to strengthen their own line. And even if we recovered more supplies from the ordnance trains, how much more damage can we inflict on them than they on us? They're bringing in fresh batteries as quickly as we drop them off. Just get some more ammunition and keep it hot. I cannot send in Pickett's division or the others until we clear some of those guns off that ridge. Returning our attention to the Federal side, the artillery barrage caught them off guard and scared the crap out of the soldiers stationed there. All they could do was wait out the bombardment and see what came next. General Hancock was pleased with the return fire from his artillery, but then he noticed one battery sitting idle. It was none other than Lieutenant Colonel Freeman McGilvery's batteries. Hancock was furious to see them not returning fire, so he sent a courier to him demanding to know why he wasn't returning fire. McGilvery replied, it was in order to save ammunition to repel the charge. Hancock was even more livid with this reply and ordered McGilvery to open fire. The courier went and then came back a few minutes later with a message from McGilvery, who reminded the general he wasn't under his command and also reportedly told him to uh, go to hell. <laughs> McGilvery had stones. Hancock knew deep down that the idea to save ammunition for the charge that would no doubt be happening was a wise one and he decided to drop the matter, though he still didn't like it. He had more important things he had to worry about instead. He needed to reassure his men and bolster their morale, so he mounted his horse and rode out to the front lines. His presence did indeed bolster the men's courage and they kept clinging to the ground and covering their ears as they waited for the barrage to cease. But some of his men were terrified for his safety and pleaded with him to get down. His response, boy howdy, his response was so good. General, please. 
Please get down. We cannot spare you. There are times when a Corps commander's life does not count. A historian wrote of Hancock this, No other Union general at Gettysburg dominated men by the sheer force of their presence more completely than Hancock. The Confederate infantry was now massed behind the tree line and were ready to charge as soon as the order was given. General Pickett received word from Colonel Alexander and read it to General Longstreet. If you are coming at all, come at once, or I cannot give you proper support. But the enemy's fire has not slackened at all. At least 18 guns are still firing from the cemetery itself. Alexander. General Longstreet, should I commence the attack? I shall lead my division forward, sir. Longstreet could only answer with a nod, for he knew the outcome already. This is what he said about the moment in his memoirs. The effort to speak the order failed, and I could only indicate it by an affirmative bow. Pickett's division marched from the tree line, and then Pickett rode up to his Brigadier Generals Low Armistead, James Kemper, and Richard Garnett and saluted them. Then, looking at his division, he bolstered their morale with these words. Up, men! Up! And to your posts! And let no man forget today that you are from old Virginia! The men looked out over the field, and then the order to move out was given, and they stepped off. Just after 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 12,500-plus Virginians and other Southerners began the infamous march towards the Federal Center. Over a mile to march before reaching the stone wall where the Federal troops lay in waiting. At first, the Federals held their fire. The sheer sight of the proud Confederates marching in a line of close to a mile mesmerized them. Their gray uniforms were highlighted by the background of the green trees and the yellow grass. The smoke from the cannons made it seem like they were almost in a mist. As they marched, they were cheered on by the artillery crews, knowing that most would not return. Then, as they grew ever closer, the Federal artillery began to open fire. Solid cannonballs began dropping amongst the troops, blasting holes on the lines and sending men flying backwards and forwards, dead and wounded. But the Virginians kept marching on, and Longstreet was proven right. As they got closer, the type of artillery was changed to percussion and canister shot. These basically turned the cannons into extremely large shotguns. Somehow, a majority of the men 
made it to the fence close to the Emmitsburg Road, and then it disintegrated. Climbing over the fence, they tried to get back into formation, but the Federals turned their cannon fire to the fence, and when they did that, it sent chunks and splinters of wood into the troops, causing catastrophic wounds. But yet they kept coming. Generals Garnett and Kemper cheered their boys on, for as they began to get close enough, they could see the Federal troops stand and open fire. But the Rebs also saw that the Yankees were scared. Yet despite this, Garnett saw his men were beginning to flounder. So knowing the outcome, he threw caution to the wind and spurred his horse forward. Garnett was killed within 50 yards of the Federal lines. He was shot through the head and fell from his horse, likely already dead. The movie depicts him being killed by canister fire, but his aide reported he was killed by a bullet. The truth is lost to history, for his body was never recovered and thus buried in a mass grave. Armistead's brigade was in reserve, and he also saw the forward advance beginning to fall apart, so he yelled to his men, The men quickened their pace to get to the fight faster, but then they began seeing their brethren lying on the ground, some in horribly twisted positions, and they too began to falter. As they reached the Emmitsburg Road, Armistead bolstered their courage yet again, and taking his hat, he stuck it on the tip of his sword and ran towards the stone wall. Virginians! Virginians! With me! Who will come with me? Meanwhile, Hancock was still astride his horse as the Rebs grew ever closer. It was quite possible he saw for a mere moment his best friend, Low Armistead, as he led his brigade across the field. Bring him in forward, we'll flank these bastards. Bring him in forward, Colonel. Yes, sir. My God, we'll flank him. But then a bullet hit him in the upper thigh, as well as his saddle sending wooden fragments and even a nail from the saddle into the wound as well. I will not be moved until this engagement is decided. Although grievously wounded, his request was respected and he remained close by the front till after the attack had been repulsed and defeated. Meanwhile in the charge, Kemper led his brigade on till he was also seriously wounded. The other brigades of Trimble and Pettigrew kept marching on until Trimble was badly wounded in the leg and had to be taken back to the southern lines. 
Pettigrew charged on yet ran into fierce opposition and was unable to penetrate the Federal lines at the stone wall. He also was badly wounded in the arm and his horse was shot up from under him, forcing him to lead his men on foot. Armistead and his men were by this time the only brigade still in enough of a formation to keep moving forward. As they crept closer, the Federals held nothing back. Canister fire destroyed entire rows of men. One regiment, the 26th North Carolina, got right up to the stone wall before they were obliterated by Federal fire. Those that remained from Company F from the first two days of fighting were all killed or wounded during the attack. More on them in the closing. Armistead got his men up to and over the stone wall and nearly broke the Federals as intended at a place known as the Angle. But reinforcements ran into the fray and halted their advance, though fighting remained brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat for several moments. Armistead cheered on his boys and attempted to rally them again to break through for the final time. But then he was mortally wounded and fell by the cannons which his boys were trying to turn around. Close to where the attack was finally repulsed was a grove of trees. This spot is now known as the high watermark of the Confederacy. By the time Armistead was shot, the attack had more or less concluded, and the last of the rebel flags were struck down. From their different positions across the field, Lee, Longstreet, and Pickett all looked through their binoculars, and each had their own thoughts. Pickett was in shock. His division, a mere hour before, had totaled over 6,000 men. It was now completely shattered. Longstreet was furious. He had known the attack was going to fail, and now he was proven right. He rode forward, intending to not let the Federals advance if they dared, as his now-defeated boys made their way back to the lines, limping and bleeding. Go the horse, Major. Sir. Major Sorrel. I said let go of the horse. Now you form up here, put fire down on them. They're coming and I'm going to meet them. Sir. Lee slowly lowered his binoculars and placed them back in their case. Then, guiding Traveler forward, he rode up a little ways and watched soberly as the troops hobbled past him. No one said anything as they passed. Some of the men brought back on stretchers were moaning in pain, as they had horribly mangled limbs. Others hobbled back using their rifles as a crutch. Still, their heads were high, and although battered and bloodied and defeated in battle, they were not defeated in spirit. He held his emotions in check, but he removed his hat and lowered his head. And putting his hand to his eyes, he winced and whispered barely audibly, All this has been my fault. He then regained his composure and made his way to General Pickett. 
General Pickett. So you may reform to the rear of this ridge and set up a defensive position. General Pickett, sir, you must look to your division. General Lee, I have no division. The Battle of Gettysburg was over. The Federals had won. After the disastrous failure of Pickett's charge, Lee knew it was now time to retreat. In order to keep his army from being completely destroyed, he had to get back across the Potomac River and back into Virginia to where they would be safe, so as to rest and prepare to fight yet again. For there would be another fight, just when and where was yet to be decided. Robert E. Lee blamed himself for the failed attack that became known as Pickett's Charge, and would later offer Jefferson Davis his resignation, which Davis refused. Historian Shelby Foote talks about this moment, and his insight is so poignant that I will let him share his thoughts with all of you. I don't know what was going through his head, and neither does anybody else, and I resent anybody trying to tell me what was going through his head. What happened was Lee committed probably the biggest mistake made by any general on either side when he ordered what's called Pickett's Charge on the third day at Gettysburg. But that's what's so interesting about Gettysburg. The first day, if it hadn't been for Hill, for Ewell holding back, uh, he, he would have uh, taken Cemetery Hill and won the battle all in one day. And the second day, he gets men right up there on the ridge fixing to go over. He's looking into the Yankee rear, uh, and he thought the third day, this will do it. There's no doubt about it. I came so close on day one, even close on day two. Here on day three, all we have to do is press it, and we've won. The result was the biggest mistake, as I said, that any general made on either side. At Gettysburg, there were 50,000 casualties, and over half of them were Confederate, mainly because of that charge on the last day. Pickett's division lost approximately 70% of its strength in that one charge. And I don't know how, I don't know how those men bore that kind of losses. I'm talking about the men who ordered them into battle. When Lee went to bed that night, finally, it must have been terrible for him to think of all those dead Virginians out on the field as a result of his orders. Some historians will still claim to know what Lee was thinking on July 3rd, 1863, when he ordered the attack. But in truth, I believe it was an act of God. Lee got overconfident and thought they were invincible and that the Federals would crumble. But God humbled him in that southern Pennsylvania town. And as a result, the war would drag on for almost another two years. On July 4th, the Army of Northern Virginia began the slow, agonizing process of retreat. The cries of the wounded as they were being loaded into the wagons was unbearable. Men who had their arms and legs sawed off were being jostled about, and there was very little chloroform or morphine to give them. 
The best painkiller they had was alcohol, and they had to use it sparingly. There were men in that column begging to be taken out and put by the side of the road to let die because of the jouncing that these wounded men were taking, broken bones rubbing up against each other and that kind of thing. Uh, it was a long column of moaning, moaning and screaming and, and uh, calling for stop, 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 and they wouldn't stop. They kept going. By the time they got underway, the wounded caravan measured 17 miles in length. 17 miles. I once again did a calculation, and for those on the Eastern Shore, you'll understand this. If you were to start at the Lowe's in Salisbury, and you drove up Route 13, through Delmar, through Laurel, into Seaford till you got to the Dairy Queen, that marks 17 miles. Again, that's just the wounded caravan. And they were in hospital wagons with no padding on dirt roads that were filled with potholes and ruts that jostled the poor men so bad that many cried out for the wagons to stop to take them out and let them die on the side of the road. You heard Shelby Foote explain that. This is just a taste of how extremely horrible the carnage of the Civil War was. And why so many historians despise when people who don't know a dang thing about it demand to take down monuments. The most grievously wounded were left back in the town of Gettysburg, of whom many succumbed to their wounds. No one at Gettysburg knew that on July 4th, Independence Day, the day that Lee began the retreat, that in western Mississippi, the fortified town of Vicksburg, which was a stronghold for the Confederacy, finally surrendered to U.S. Grant's forces after a month and a half long siege. The first four days of July, 1863, mark the true beginning of the end of the Confederacy, in my opinion. They fought on valiantly till the beginning of spring, 1865, but the army never fully recovered from the losses at Gettysburg and Vicksburg. During the retreat itself, when the Confederate army reached the Potomac, they found that the river was flooded and would slow them down considerably. Meade could have taken the Army of the Potomac and finished Lee off right there, but his army was beyond exhausted and had also suffered ghastly casualties. He had lost three corps commanders. Reynolds was dead, and Hancock and Sickles were both gravely wounded. Four brigadier generals and numerous colonels and other officers down through the ranks were all killed or wounded. Some, including myself for a time, criticized Meade for the lack of attacking Lee and ending the war on the banks of the Potomac right then and there. But after doing my research, I understand why he didn't. This is why doing your homework pays off and helps you understand things in a better way. If I hadn't done that research on the Army of the Potomac and how catastrophic their injuries were, I still would be thinking, 
Why the heck did Meade not attack Lee on the Potomac? He could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. But, as is the case throughout history, God was in control and knew what he was doing, as he does now. In conclusion, I wanted to wrap up this episode by sharing with you some other moments and statistics I wasn't able to share during the story. Johnston Pettigrew's command, although greatly shattered during Pickett's charge, was ordered to form the rear guard and hold off Union cavalry raids as they crossed back into Virginia. Ten days later, his men were the last to cross and were going to as soon as possible when he was shot and mortally wounded fighting off a federal attack. He was carried across the river where he died three days later, and he was buried with honors in his native state of North Carolina. The Iron Brigade, which I shared with you in Part 1, suffered the most casualties of a brigade of its size at Gettysburg, suffering over 60% casualties. The 26th North Carolina brought 843 men to the field, the largest regiment in the battle. Its casualty rate was 81.9%, 172 killed, 443 wounded, and 72 missing or captured, a total of 687. Every man of Company F was killed or wounded. No regiment on either side of Gettysburg suffered more casualties than the 26th North Carolina. You have heard me mention this man's name multiple times, and you have heard his voice for yourself. But ladies and gentlemen, here is Shelby Foote yet again to explain a story that I have never been able to find other than his account. Now, he spent 20 years researching the Civil War, so I fully believe when he says the story is true, that it is true. Here he is. There were two survivors, as a matter of fact. The man carrying the flag and a man next to him made it up to the wall. And the Northern soldiers held their fire. And one of them held his hand out and said to the Confederate flag bearer, come over on this side of the Lord. And he helped him over the wall as a prisoner, of course. The two of them, the only survivors. I don't know if who he is talking about is the 26th North Carolina, but in the making of Gettysburg, where you can find that clip, they are talking about a North Carolina regiment. So I can only assume that it is a company within the 26th North Carolina that he is referring to. As for Jeb Stuart's exhausted cavalry, they were to be a divisionary attack to draw more troops away from the center at Cemetery Ridge. But he clashed instead with none other than Brigadier General George Armstrong Custer. Yes, that Custer and General David Gregg. They fought throughout the late morning and early afternoon with each side mounting attacks and counterattacks. It was here that Custer would shout to his Michiganders, Come on, you Wolverines! as they charged forward into the fray. The end result of the fight was more or less a draw. Stuart probably withdrew after receiving reports that the attack had been repulsed with massive casualties. His division had only suffered 181 dead or wounded, while the Federals had lost 284. Everywhere the Rebs attacked on July 3rd was successfully pushed back by Federal troops, marking one of the first true days of victory 
for the Army of the Potomac. It is estimated that there were 51,112 casualties as a result of the Battle of Gettysburg, the bloodiest battle of the war, and in fact, the bloodiest battle of the Western Hemisphere. Now, I first did this next bit of research over 10 years ago, but I redid it for the research of this podcast. The latest census poll of Salisbury, Maryland, totaled 32,850 people, roughly. Seaford, Delaware, 7,163. Ocean City, Maryland, 6,957. And Fruitland, Maryland, 5,281. Totaling 52,251 people. In a mere three days of fighting, not even full days, mind you, the entire population of all those cities and towns is wiped out save for 1,100 people. In three days! Over 7,000 men have been killed as a direct result of the battle and another 32,264 had been wounded and around 10,790 were missing. This devastating statistic about how many were missing was due in part to many contributing factors. One, during the Civil War, the soldiers had no form of IDs. If they got lost on the battlefield or were killed by cannon fire and were beyond recognition, there was no way to know who the dead were. Also, during any of the confusion of any military engagement, there were those who were just fed up with fighting and decided now was as good a time as any to slip off without being noticed. But the main reason is due to the lack of IDs on the bodies of the dead when being buried, and thus a large portion of those missing were probably dead and now lost. One story I heard was that men were writing their names on pieces of paper and sewing or pinning them to their uniforms so people would know who they were when their bodies were collected. It's hard to fathom that nowadays, isn't it? I mentioned at the end of part one, there was one lone civilian killed during the Battle of Gettysburg, Jenny Wade. She was at her sister's house to care for her and her newborn baby. On the first day of fighting, over a hundred bullets would hit the house, but no one was hurt. About 8 a.m. on July 3rd, Wade was kneading dough to make some fresh bread when a mini ball traveled through the kitchen door and the parlor door of her sister's house and hit her, killing her instantly. It is uncertain which side fired the fatal shot. Her remains would be buried and then exhumed several times before she was finally laid to rest in Evergreen Cemetery where an American flag flies over her grave 24-7-365. Betsy Ross is the only other woman to have that honor. Several months after the battle, it was decided to honor the Union dead by commemorating a national cemetery on the field on which they had fallen. The dead had been buried in mass graves on the battlefield, 
but were now being reinterred in the new cemetery, which was created just adjacent to the town's own cemetery. President Abraham Lincoln was invited for the consecration, although he was not the main speaker for the event. David Wills of the Committee for the November 19th Consecration of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg wrote to him the following. Dear Sir, it is the desire that after the oration you, as Chief Executive of the nation, formally set apart these grounds to their sacred use by a few appropriate remarks. Your humble and obedient, David Wills. Lincoln accepted the invitation and then thoughtfully prepared his remarks and made a handful of changes to them. Before settling on a mere 10 sentences. The main speaker on that autumn day, November 19, 1863, was Edward Everett, a famous and well-known orator and politician. He basically spoke on the entire battle and comparing it to the battles of antiquity. In fact, he spoke for over two hours. Lincoln was beginning to feel unwell the night before and it is now believed he had contracted a form of smallpox and would be extremely ill for several days after he delivered his remarks. After Everett had concluded his oration, the host introduced the President of the United States. Abraham Lincoln rose from his seat and walked to the podium. Then, removing his glasses from his jacket pocket, he opened his speech and began. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation, or any nation so conceived and so dedicated, can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. After concluding his address, the crowd stood still in stunned silence. No one knew what had just happened. 
They thought Lincoln would drone on for several hours like Everett had, but he had not even spoken for four minutes. The photographer was able to snap a quick photo just as Lincoln was sitting back down. He felt that he had failed, that it was a poor speech, that the people didn't like it. It was so brief, less than two minutes. He felt that he had failed. Lehman, his friend Ward Lehman, was sitting next to him on the stand. When he sat down, there was just a sprinkling of applause. And he said, Lehman, that speech won't scowl. That's what you say about a plow in the prairies when the mud doesn't come off it. Dear Mr. President, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Edward Everett. The Gettysburg Address is now considered to be one of the greatest American speeches ever written. I wish Lincoln could have lived to see how much of an impact those words truly had on the rest of America. Friends, there are countless other stories about Gettysburg, which I kind of hinted at, and there's just far too many for me to be able to share with you all on a podcast. I wish I could have done more, but then I would be taking away the experience of learning it on your own away from y'all. And I didn't want to do that. I want you guys to research and fall in love with the story of Gettysburg, despite the nastiness of what took place there. When you step foot on Gettysburg Battlefield nowadays, it is like hallowed ground. To me, anyways, I love visiting Gettysburg, especially in the fall time. It is just so peaceful there. It is one of the best things you will ever do in your life. I would highly encourage you also to read some of the countless books that have been written about Gettysburg, both fiction and nonfiction. On the nonfiction side, you have Longstreet's memoirs, From Manassas to Appomattox. I've only read a snippet or two of it. I've been wanting to read more of it. I just have to find the time. But Longstreet is no doubt one of my absolute favorite generals of the Civil War. And I highly respect what he did at Gettysburg. He didn't want to fight the battle, but he still respected the authority over him. And that was hard to do considering how many men died as a result of it. You also have Chamberlain's memoirs, Shelby Foote's The Stars in Their Courses, or you can also read his full Civil War dissertation, which is three volumes. And like I said, this took him 20 years to write, back before they had computers. You can also check out the Gettysburg YouTube page, where you can watch rangers like Jim Fluke and Matt Atkinson, who give detailed accounts of the battle as they lead separate tours around. In my opinion... Matt Atkinson is hands down one of, if not the best, tour guide for Gettysburg. He has just a way about him. He has humor, and he can get the crowd invested in the story, and it's just phenomenal. He is so talented, and I would highly recommend you checking out his specific videos. Matt Atkinson is phenomenal. He's the best thing God. God don't make them any better, and that's a fact. 
Oh, hey, with an endorsement like Low Armistead, you can't get much better than that. All right, all right. So I did a little editing on that one, but I, I, it, it works in my opinion anyway. <laughs> um, folks, another thing you can do is you can check out some songs about Gettysburg and I, I love folk ballads. It's probably my favorite genre of music. Songs that tell stories. And Jim Nelson released an album called To Gettysburg. And you can find that on whatever streaming service you prefer. I love that album. It covers basically a large portion of the battle. At least the well-known parts of it. Culp's Hill, for whatever reason, is barely mentioned in most accounts. I don't understand why. But, and even I barely touched on the whole significance of Culp's Hill because of so many other points. And that is kind of what Jim Nelson did in his album. But I would highly recommend you checking that album out. It is called To Gettysburg. Um, Another independent artist named Dave Matthews, not of the Dave Matthews band, released an album called Gettysburg. And he released a couple of songs on it. It's good. It's not as good as some others, in my opinion, but it is still very entertaining. You can watch the movie Gettysburg. You heard multiple clips throughout the course of these two episodes on Gettysburg on the Snowman Podcast. While it does take certain liberties and leaves a lot out, it is still one of, if not my personal favorite, Civil War film. Some historians knock it today because it wasn't authentic enough. Well, au contraire, I think for a movie that was originally made for television and had thousands of Civil War reenactors coming and bringing with them all of their own gear, it should be hailed as a -a one-of-a-kind movie. But the best way to learn about the battle is by visiting the battlefield. It is, no doubt, and I have said it so many different times, it is, no doubt, one of the most beautiful places here on God's green earth. Ain't that the truth. And that will do it for this episode of the Snowman Podcast. Folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It is one of my passions to show people the true history of Gettysburg. And I really hope I did that through this episode. It has been a long time in the making. It is probably one of, if not the most detailed episode I've ever worked on. And I really hope that you just love the story and you want to just re-listen to it. Not to hear my voice, but just to hear the stories of Gettysburg. If you like this episode, please share it with your family and friends. You can find the Snowman Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Reason.fm, and YouTube. If you are on iTunes, I would personally be very grateful if you subscribed and gave a five-star rating. And if you're on Spotify, I would love it for you to follow me there so you never miss out on a new episode. It will also make it easier for your friends to find the show as well. Or as I always say, just type in the Snowman Podcast and look for an American flag with a snowman in the foreground. Till next time, this is Snowman, and I'll see you now here. So, oh, good. What did Lee say to his old war horse when he looked at Grant Avenue on the outskirts of Washington, D.C.? My, that's a long street. Uh. Do not buy that man a cigar.